This is Talking Dirty, Get Gardening's podcast for plant lovers. The video version is available on our Get Gardening YouTube channel, so you can head over there if you want to see our ugly mugs, and there are pictures of the plants there as well. There are full plant lists on our Twitter and Instagram at Get Gardening Now, so go check those out. But without further ado, let's start Talking Dirty. Hello and welcome to Talking Dirty, episode 41. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking very smart in front of his dresser, we have Alan Edward Herbert Gray, our happy and very handsome horticulturalist. 41? We've really done 41. <laughs> well, perhaps this time I'll get it right, shall I? Over in Cambridgeshire, with a sunny smile to suit a sunny day, is Thordis Maria Sophia Friedrichsen on this fabulous, fabulous day. I think you've had four spots of rain. We have had absolutely nothing, but I believe <laughs> In the Cotswolds, they're rather more, shall we say, fortunate. They are. Very lucky is Val born in the Cotswolds. We are jealous. Award-winning garden writer, organic gardener, great friend of this podcast, and someone who's actually had a day of rain. Yes, I didn't hear it, but the best beloved said he heard it raining at four in the morning. But when I got up at about six o'clock, it was wet. And it was wet for most of the day. And it, it was light rain, but occasionally we'd get these heavier bursts. And it went on till about six o'clock in the evening. And uh, I think there must have been a black cloud over cold Aston. And um, so we got quite a lot of rain. But the garden looks dire, absolutely dire, because we're having such cold nights. And everything looks pinched and... I keep sending the best beloved out to fleece everything about seven o'clock at night in the greenhouses. He's fed up with it and nothing's growing. And I looked at my pictures of last year on the same day and it's like a different world. The apple blossom was out and all sorts. And it's just a wasteland here. I think you're absolutely right. That's the general consensus of opinion with nurserymen, Val, because we've been trying to buy plants in to sell on our plant stand and they can't sell because they've not rooted through the pots yet um so it's, it's something that we're all going through our greenhouses here are stuffed to the gunnels with all the lovely tender things that we generally put out i did something yesterday which you may think is very very foolish because i took some argaranthemums you know the the um tender daisy type things i took I'm out of the greenhouse and put them outside. I've been to look at them this morning. I put them in ornamental pots on our pond because the, the, they've gone over and I, I can't bear to, for there not to be anything in them. And so I put them in together with some um, origeron. And there's another one called lavender lady as well, which is a, um, a form of Carvinskianum. Um, and I put them all outside, I straight in the greenhouse, and I thought they're going to look a wreck this morning, but they don't. And the reason yeah. is because you, your frosts, I'm afraid, inland in the you know, the greater landmass is much um, yes. than around the coastal area, which, which is where we are. Yeah, you, you have um, a, a much more um, a temperate climate than we yeah. do in the heart of yeah. England. We're cold here. Yes, definitely. I think it's encouraging um, for people to hear that you two very proficient and experienced gardeners are having just the same troubles as everybody else because in a world where our phone is always telling us this is what was happening last year on April the whatever it, it, you kind of have this constant reminder of oh no look what my seedlings were doing last year look what my garden was doing last year and you feel like you failed. Yes well I think a lot of gardeners started gardening last year because of lockdown and I've just written an article in um, 
amateur gardening saying, please don't give up because this year is really tricky. It's and that's the whole thing of gardening. That's why it's so interesting. Mm. It's like a learning curve because you never get the same conditions twice. And this is getting more and more true as climate change, you know, wreaks havoc on our weather. I'll go back to my childhood, for instance, you know, January, you had snow, then you had February fill dike when the snow yep. melted, filled all the ditches and everything flooded. Then we had March winds, which we always had. And I always remember daffodils bending in the wind. And then we yeah. had April showers and you could rely on April showers to wake the garden up. And everyone was planting and they didn't think about watering because they knew there'd be a shower tomorrow. Yes, now, yes. Mm. The, the old age, um, three fine days and a thunderstorm was yes. very much my childhood in London because yes. we used to get a lot of thunderstorms because of the warm air, you know, generating yeah. really black clouds and then you get this torrential rain. And, and that was very much my, the pattern of weather that I experienced rain, as a child. That rain from thunderstorms apparently contains something called ions, doesn't it? Which they is, do. Which is yeah. fantastic for plant growth. It is. I've got a gadget and it's a magnetizer that you fit onto your hose pipe and it's like giant magnets and it clamps round the hose and it puts the ions in the water and it's meant to help seedlings and things like that grow. And uh, you smile, but in Australia, they use huge magnets on their water supply and horticulture to, to create these ions. Wow. So, um, of course, I haven't done a an experiment, control experiment, but uh, it's on the hose and uh, uh, it seems to work. Every little That's helps. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we might have sounded a bit down on the, I mean, the, we are down on the weather, dry and cold and generally difficult. That being mm. said, lots of things are looking fabulous. I mean, I took an absolutely joyful stroll around Alan's garden uh, last weekend and there's plenty of things that are looking fab. So Val, what, what is looking lovely in your garden at the moment? Well, I quite like a cold spring because I, I'm a very big fan of erythroniums. And ah. um, if, if we get, a, if we get a, um, a very warm spring and the temperatures are up, the erythroniums actually hate it and the flowers are very small and they shrivel up. But if we get this cold, dry weather, there's enough in the bulb for them to flower really well. And I picked up a new one because I, I just love the foliage. Mm. And this one is... Um, Oregonum revolutum um, from God's Valley. And it's obviously wild collected. And I picked this up in Avondale Nursery in near Coventry. And uh, it's the flowers are over and I very reluctantly cut one leaf, but this is just such an amazing foliage. And that's one of the reasons that I absolutely love erythroniums. And I've got a lot of different ones. And um, this one, and, and many of them have um, these uh, scapes with a couple of flowers on or even more and this one um i think this one is winifred and this is just a sumptuous pink and this one has sumptuous foliage as well very mottled and it earns them the name trout lily because of the scaled appearance but the funny thing is not all of them keep it and i went to a garden center with a friend and there were loads of white beauties and that's a very very cheapest chips bulb which is a really good one to start with it's a form of Californicum. And we spent a long time going through trying to find the best foliage on, on, on the bulbs. And then we went to another one, which was the yellow one pagoda, and tried to pick out the best foliage and planted them. And within about three weeks, the foliage had dimmed. 
for some reason. And yes. it was just the same as the ordinary ones. It seemed to sort of morph back again. But this this keeps its foliage and it's absolutely lovely. Yeah, I was very lucky last year in the fact that last autumn, the, one of the chaps that supplies plants to me uh, came in with a, a sack containing a hundred um, of those little bulbs of pagoda and said, yes. I've got these, I don't want them, have them as a present. <laughs> and so, of That's course, a good I. Friend to have. <laughs> yeah, it is a good friend to have. But I mean, one area we, we were just cleared out, and it's interesting you say leaf litter. We just, we had yeah. some, a, a huge um, a leaf mold pile of our own making. We put that completely in this area. We've lifted the canopy, it's a woodland area, we lifted the canopy, we yeah. cleared it up. And there are just huge drifts of them in there. This year yeah. they don't have much because they, they were newly planted last autumn, but hopefully that's in the future. Yes, they, they do bulk up really, really well, Erythroniums. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and they're enjoying this spring. I was going to ask you that, Val, because I don't grow that many. I grow Pagoda, and I've recently got a couple of others. I think was Revolutum was one. Um, and the other one, which Thunder and I shared at the weekend when we had a little plant fair in the garden here, was a variety called Joanna, which is... Yes, I've got Joanna. Yeah. She sort of um, um, is a pink one that sort of morphs with yellow overtones, isn't she? Yeah, pretty apricot. Keith Wiley used to yeah. come over to East Anglia, the bulb sale, and sell yeah. bulbs. So I picked up quite a lot from him. And I've got, uh, I've got a lot of different ones. I've probably got about 20. And oh, they all bulk up really, really well. I mean, so a lot of them are collected in the wild because it's a snowmelt plant in the wild, which, yeah. which is why it's enjoying these cold temperatures. It's as happy as Larry. I mean, I, I'm surprised at how well it's done because I thought the dry month would just do for it, but it's, they're really magnificent this year. Yeah. Wonderful things. That's a wonderful point to make because we would, Thunder, you just mentioned, you know, we're, we're groaning and moaning about the weather and this and that and the other, but there is mm. always a plant that will do well in whatever the conditions are, whether we have torrential rain or whether we have drought. Yes. There's, there's always a bright side in the garden. <laughs> there is. There's, it's funny, um, we almost, this podcast seems to become like the, the cult of Erythronium Joanna. Um, I know I was very <laughs> excited to try and find it. And um, I, one of our viewers uh, her, her dad found it at a, a, a car boot sale that Joe Sharman of Monk Silver had gone to. So I've messaged him ahead of Alan's plant fair to say, please, can I have a Joanna? And obviously Alan's yeah. got a Joanna as well now. So it's like Joanna has become yeah. one of the, the kind of yeah. main plants, like a flagship plant of the Talking Dirty podcast. They associate really well with trilliums, actually, because trilliums also need leaf litter. And I can't make enough leaf litter to do the whole woodland garden. So I just put it on the, mo the most sheltered corner where, where there are trilliums. And then I have um, some raised beds with the erythroniums in and I, and I put it round those. Can I'm I actually... carry on telling and telling or, or not? <laughs> No, we'll do. I'm just really glad you brought erythroniums to the conversation because um, last week when we visited Richard Hobbs at home, he had some lovely erythroniums. Oh, yeah. but we, we were so busy talking about mascara. Oh, it was wonderful. Um, people, can, we'll put a link up so people can go and find it. But muscari, scillas, anemones, pulsatillas, there was so much to talk about that we never got onto erythroniums and he had a lovely little crop with his trillium. There was yeah, a wonderful, yeah. wonderful trillium, the, the one with the big red bracts on the top and the, the mottled foliage. There was a superb specimen of that in, in Richard's garden. And you've just found me my Flomo. Hey! <laughs> well, the one to go for is a North American species named after a Japanese botanist. So it's Trillium cura 
fasciae. And that is early, has wonderful foliage, and their plants are very, very variable. You should always buy a trillium in flower, not from bulb, because uh, it's an evolving genus and, and the foliage varies from plant to plant. Oh. And I've got some wonderful, uh, wonderfully different ones. I've got quite a lot of trilliums here. And um, that's just wonderful in March because it, it, I find it more spectacular than chloropetalum, uh, kurabashii. Everybody thinks it's Japanese. Can I, can I carry on showing and telling? You can. <laughs> and I want to show you this. This is, this is a plant that I bought on Friday. My first plant sale for over a year. I had terrible withdrawal symptoms. And I went and Bob Brown had this for sale. And it's a form of the Euphorbia rigida, which is one of those Glaucus spurges. And it's got red bracts, orange bracts. Most of them have got yellow bracts. And instead of like Mercenites has got almost succulent life curved leaves, Rigida's leaves are very pointed and stiff. It, yeah. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing in a warm place. It's a Mediterranean plant. But I haven't seen this orange form since the 1980s when a lady called Hazel Kay used to have a nursery on the bypass between Coventry and Leicester. I was the slowest car on the bypass because I was trying to find the turning to the nursery. And I was so pleased to see it again. And immediately I bought it. Timothy Walker, who used to be the national collection holder and the Hortus Perfectii of Oxford Botanic Garden, came up to me and said, where did you get it? No, no, hello, Val, how are you? Where did you get it? So I knew it was a good plant. And uh, Bob Brown um, had five uh, at one time. I think I've got the last one, actually. But it's got some young plants coming on. And um, I really like these... Uh, succulent euphorbias they need good drainage i lost my um one in the 1980s in a very severe winter so i hope it survives that is lovely i do mm. love euphorbia i can give good drainage so that is on my list <laughs> yes and also you you've got the maritime temperatures yeah you know it, you get the warmer winters so it would grow i mean yeah. i i'm hoping mine will be all right um hazel k used to say that it was very, very difficult to propagate. And I rather think that Bob Brown is raising it from seed. That's my thought. Yeah. Because um, red is a very strong recessive gene. Um, his son, Ed, told me that because I phoned him up about it to see whether they had one for Timothy. So I don't know whether Timothy's going to get one or not, but he's not having mine. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting, the thing about good drainage, I think um, it's one of the things I've been experimenting with with my garden, because obviously I've got this horrible, horrible, heavy, claggy clay. But I always think it's worth trying with plants. I mean, it is sad when you lose them, but I've got several different euphorbias that have been done really well. And, yeah. I, I, you know, different euphorbias have different um, desires, I suppose. But, yeah, I've got yeah. a range and, and lots of them have been very happy in my clay. Well, oriental hellebores, hybrid hellebores, don't do very well in my woodland garden because it lies too wet in winter. So I put the special ones in raised beds that are about a foot high. I've got four square ones, I suppose about eight by eight. And they are make big plants, you know, enormous plants, uh, whereas the others are just sort of struggling on, really. The drainage is key for a lot of things. Yeah, good drainage. Definitely. What have you got next then, Val? Well, um, I, I'm a great lover of long grass and bulb lawns. And I think everybody should have them in a garden. They shouldn't mow everything so it's all boring and flat. 
um, because long grass is actually very good for wildlife. You get all sorts of creatures sheltering in it. You get bees who can nest in it. So I've got two bulb areas in my garden and I put sticks around them uh, and mow around them. So they look as though they should be there. And, uh, and um, in this particular patch, it starts with wild daffodils, but then I've got a lot of um, cowslips and I, if I see an interesting premier or an interesting cowslip or an interesting polyanther, I buy it and I plonk it in the garden. And then the seed, uh, uh, the different genes mix really well because they're really bee-friendly plants. And the primroses are really good in damp places, but the cowslips um, are really, really good in drier places. And this is a hose-in-hose cowslip. I get lots of interesting seedlings popping up. So hose in hose, um, this hose in hose cowslip uh, is in part of the bulb lawn. And um, if you, with the, the drying climate that we've got and the hotter summers, cowslips are actually the way to go if you want to have an early flower for bees, because all the early bees that come out have short tongues and they have hairy bodies and they really spread the pollen about. So the early flowers are nearly always accessible. So I'm a great lover of uh, you know primroses and cowslips, and I have some very interesting ones. I mustn't drip this on my computer because it might go up in smoke. Um, that has no flower at all, and if it had a flower, it would be called a Jack in the Polpit or a Jack in the Green. These are ancient names that go right back to Elizabethan times, and this one's just leafy and it's made a huge clump, and it's ever so attractive, even though it's got no flower. It's just wonderful. So I got lots of those in the garden. And uh, in this particular bulb lawn that I've got, it's got yellow rattle and it's got wild orchids um, as well, uh, which I've planted, I'm afraid. It didn't, they haven't come back naturally. But I've got um, this little fritillaria, Pyrenaica, self-seeding. I started with probably four bulbs and it's probably about 80 of them now. And they're all slightly different um, because it's self-seeding and so many species bulbs spread by self-seeding, not offsets. You know, they scatter their seed and there's variability there. And because we're growing other fritillarias, um, we've got um, Pontica, Acromapetala, Elwesii in various parts of the garden, we're getting variations. And, and these are delightful. And um, I also have naturalised in that grass, Queen of Night. I like how she's coming from the side. Well. Yeah, coming in from the side. <laughs> I don't think I can do it from there. I don't want to trip on my computer, you see, so just, just leave me alone. <laughs> so um, these are sort of interspersed um, with white um, um, narcissi. Yeah. I think this is Thalia because, yeah. um, you know, again, I leave them to self-seed. And um, the whites are always later than the yellows. And of course you get this mixture. You Sorry? Just, the name depends on how posh you are. Um, I, <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm not posh. No, neither am I, but I always call it Talia. I was oh, told well, I, that... I don't know, I call it Thalia, I don't know. Well, this I, is interesting. I, I we had this debate with Bridget of Moss and Stone, and then I got a tweet come in um, which said, oh, I always said the H. So we thought we'd figured out that it was without the H, but now you've gone and said it with an H and with an A rather than an R. So but is it Thalia, is it Thalia, is it Thalia, is it Thalia? Who knows? This is a very posh one, though, because these bulbs came from Highgrove. Oh, and that was a who had to dig them up. <laughs> Don't tell HRH. 
That was years ago, years and years and years ago. One thing that you just triggered in my mind that I'm wondering as a gardener is the fact that you've got Queen of the Night naturalised in your in your meadow. Um, and we're all been in, being encouraged, which I think is very important to let some of the grass grow. You don't have to cut it all. Um, one, I'm wondering whether some of the species tulips, and it might, you know, some may, some may not, but it might be worth um, experimenting with some of the species tulips that you find in some of the bulb catalogues. Tulipa sylvestris is very good yeah. in grass because yes. I, I, I visited Exbury where they've made a river of bulbs because it was a special anniversary. And they, they get a Dutch bulb company and they hire um, one of these bulb planters and plant the yeah. bulbs really quickly. Uh, and they put a lot of sylvestris in and it's come back. And Wadston also do well with tulipa sylvestris in their bulb plantings, which are done in exactly the same way. So I think that some of the species tulips would do really well. Um, mm -hmm. I went to a garden called Maynow on uh, Lake Constance many years ago where they naturalised tulips. So I thought I would have a go in my grass and just put a few spare yeah. bulbs in. No. I've got a yellow that does well, but I've forgotten the name of it, so that's not very helpful. But certainly Queen of the Nights, it seems to be, I just don't, I don't deadhead anything in there. It just gets to self-seed. So, and it's spreading with gaps. So I suggest that probably seedlings. Yes. Well, I'll tell you, now you just mentioned something there, which I think is quite important. And this goes for probably nearly all bulb seedlings, nearly all bulbs, when they when they grow as a seedling, they start with one little leaf. And that one little narrow leaf is very easily mistaken for a blade of grass. So yes. If you're, yes. So if you're growing them in the garden, and unless you know what you're looking for, you're liable to weed the, the bulb seedlings out. We did this yes. with um, I did an experiment with, what's the tulip I grew thunder from? Rangarai? Rangarai, that's it. The oh yes, Rangarai, yes. I sowed it in, in, a, in a large seed tray, covered the seed with gravel, fresh seed, and then put it in the shade and left it there. The following spring, it looked like a little lawn with all these yeah. little legs of grass, and you suddenly realise that they are tulips. And in their, yeah. in, in, in their juvenile state, they look like grass, so they're easily weeded out. Well, the most confusing things are trillium seedlings because they come up with one one sort of leafy, almost blade, and then they go oval, and it takes several years before you get the the three leaflets forming. So All I've right. weeded out quite a few. I've thrown away trillium seedlings, thinking I've mislabeled them and thinking they were lily seedlings, and I've abandoned lilies here because we get such lily beetle problems. So it's very mm. difficult. But you know, people don't realise because they're told to deadhead their bulbs. It's yes. only the ones with the names in single italics that are highly bred hybrids that you should deadhead. If you're yeah. growing a species with two Latin names like Scyllus iberica um, or <laughs> Fritillaria pyrenaica, something that is a species, that you have to leave that to its own devices. You shouldn't deadhead it because that's the way it spreads. It doesn't spread by offsets. Well, one of the most famous... One of the most famous Scyllus, or should I say infamous, depending on whether you want them or not, <laughs> is Scyllabathinica, because that is, a, I find it a diminutive little darling with lovely blue carpets of flowers all throughout yeah. the woodland. And I asked for some from the Botanic Garden. One of the girls was there working one day when I was there, and I said, can I have a few of those? And she said, well, I'll give you a shovelful, but are you really sure that you want it? And I said, yes. And now, I, of course, I've got it. But it is I mean, it's, it's very early, it's over, finished and tidy. And when the shrubs and the trees above it start putting their leaves out, it's gone. Yes, I, I, I'm sort of 
I'm sort of on the I'm sort of um, sitting on the fence about one of mine, which is syllabifolia. Yeah, because that's that's early and it's quite starry and diminutive and it's way earlier than Sibirica and it and it, and it sells seeds. But when you see the size of the um, seed pods, I don't know whether you'll cut this out for this. They're like small testicles. <laughs> I yeah, won't cut it out. Everywhere. I'll leave that one up to you. My last show and tell plant is this grass, which I grow among ferns. And, you know, before I had my day's rain, Alan, yes. my whole day's rain, this was down about here. I went out this morning and it has started to produce its little flower. It's this um, Melica, Melica uniflora, I think it is, variety alba. I will email you the name. And it's always at Chelsea. It's a very designerish plant because it flowers in March. And it's wonderful because it has these little rice-like white beads, which go so well with ferns. And that wonderful wood sage with the um, uh, uh, sort of um, crinkled edge-leafed uh, Tucrium scorodonium crispum. Yes, that's right. Yes. Well <laughs> and um, I had to think about that one. And, uh, I, you know, I really like, I, I, I love my spring garden. But when you get to this time of year, things are going over. You know, you're cutting hellebore heads off and your, um, your ferns are coming up and the mood in the garden changes. And this seems to catch the gentility of May brilliantly. I love it, the gentility of May. That's wonderful. I've been planting some of my, I've been refurbishing some of my alpine troughs. And like you, your spring garden, Val, the alpine troughs seem to be yes. at their very best in spring. And I was just thinking, I need to get some, you know, some extra plants. So I was going through a couple of lists yesterday and I was just looking for autumn or late summer and autumn flowering plants. And there are very few alpines that actually in comparison to the spring flowering ones, that flower at that time. So it's quite difficult to keep the season going. Well, there are some alpine bulbs. There is a scylla. I think it's called something like lingulata. It's a little blue scylla. There are a couple of autumn flowering scyllas. And well, of course there are autumn Yeah. Yeah, and there are, uh, I mean, there's Asis autumn gnarly. Yeah, it's a little, little snowflake thing. Mm. A little snowflake thing. But the, the, some of the autumn um, scyllas are nice. And the, I like autumn crocuses very much. Yes, so um, do I. Bellini and things like that. And I think they will... It raises them up so they're closer to the eye. Yeah, I, 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 think, I mean, I can't actually think of any later flowering alpines, but then I don't grow a lot of alpines because I don't have any troughs here. I have no. a small one. Um, you know, which I put, um, which is very boring because I only grow cyclum and cum in it, but it's absolutely delightful in the winter when it flowers in January because it's near the house. Yeah. But, you know, a single trough on its mm. own, filled with one plant. Um, I can remember seeing it uh, outside a house in Wiltshire when I went outside the back door was this lovely old stone trough and it was just full of snowdrops. Mm. And that's all it yeah. was. And snowdrops and moss and a bit of gravel. And it just looked so charming. I mean, I went to Primrose Hall in Ireland and I saw this great big uh, cattle trough full of uh, the yellow one, Sanders Eye. And, yeah. you know, I quite like, um, you know, one thing yes. uh, in, a, in, in a tub. I, it doesn't bother me whether things uh, have their moment and then fade. Well, I've got um, outside my back door, 
you know what it's like when you have your garden open to the public you must realize this that with it you know there are certain areas your little private areas that you keep just for yourself and we all have them when we have you know to escape to yes. <laughs> um the area where my kitchen door opens out is a little courtyard seen closed um and it's special but it's the most neglected part of my garden i do believe yes. <laughs> But there is there is one trough just outside the back door with one ingredient in it, and that plant is the the black leafed lily liriope, and it just has that style about it that looks wonderful. I'm getting bored of it now, I have to say. So I did actually think, and this is where it's useful when you've got a sales area. I did actually think, well, now that things are starting to move a little bit, I'm going to whip those out of there, and I'm going to do next spring. I'm going to do it, providing I can propagate enough plants. That is. I'm going to copy an idea I saw at Sissinghurst Castle where they had a very dark blue auricula filling this stone trough and it just looked stunning. Yes. So I'm going to try that next year and see what happens. But I'm going to sell my liriope. <laughs> yes. I didn't know there was a black leaved liriope. Is it, well, isn't it? No, no, it's not liriope. Is it? May I just compliment you on your glasses? Because I don't think I've seen those ones before. They're very um, smart now. I always wear these in the office. You, you probably oh. have seen them. Yes, yes. Perhaps I was in the more dingy bit over there because I'm on a different <laughs> computer. My main computers had to go off to the hospital. Um, I feel a bit left out now. I have to get mine out. <laughs> <laughs> a very funny story about the best beloved. He, he doesn't do very much weeding in the garden. He always says it's because he doesn't know what to do. But this particular day, he took it out upon himself to weed the area under the study window. And I've got a lot of silver things in there. I've got a lovely little scabious, you don't see very often, graminifolia, grass leaf yeah. folia, uh, scabious. I've got a pink and a blue form and it sells seeds. And I got it from Alan Bloom years ago. So it's very precious to me. And I was growing um, a lot of the South African geraniums, Harvey because it's dry under there and sunny. And because it's silver and they look rather shabby in the winter, I had grown Ophiopogon through it. But because I'm so cold, it took nearly 10 years for it to sort of spread all the way through the border. Well, he came in on this particular day and said, you know, he said, I've taken that Ophiopogon out. He said, it was everywhere. <laughs> oh dear! Oh dear! God, <laughs> and at that point, he said, "Do you know what? It's okay that you don't do any weeding." <laughs> <laughs> um, can we be a little bit? Well, can I be self-indulgent and ask a question of you two? Because I've got this empty alpine trough, and I'm almost too frightened to plant it because it's only little, and. I want I want to put the nicest things in it I can, but I also don't want them to be too difficult because I've not had an alpine trough before and I don't want to kill them. So if you're a beginner with having your first alpine trough, what should you put in it? What would be the star plants? I think I'd like Alan to answer this one because he's much more <laughs> up on alpines and I've talked far too much. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's... I've got some ideas, but... <laughs> I, well, Val, you'll have to help me because there's... Um... There's that strange little plant that is minuscule in its growth. It depends whether your, your trough is in sun or shade as well, Thunder, because both are possible. Um, but there's that minuscule little plant that resembles 
sheep that grows on New Zealand. Do you know that the gray leaf, gray leaf thing? It does nothing very much, but it forms this little hummock, this weird shaped hummock that looks like a sleeping no, sheep. No. <laughs> oh. Well, that's that I want to help you with that. <laughs> I think probably one of the star plants for the spring are some of the crusted saxifrag. And the one I would go yes. for is a variety called Tumbling Waters, because Tumbling yeah, Waters... That was, that was on mine, actually. Was it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. It, they have this lovely little rosettes and then this huge panicle of flowers yes. um, that is completely out of proportion to the size of the, the tiny little plant. But it is spectacular, and I would fill my small sink with that, I think. But you have to be aware of one thing, and that's that dreaded thing called the vine weevil, because vine weevils love to creep up the sides of your trough and lay, lay their eggs underneath your saxifrage, and then the, the root, the, the hatchlings feed on your roots and yes. you know destroy the thing. So you've got to watch for that. What do you do about um, vine weevil? I mean, what is there anything we can do? Um, well, unfortunately, the chemical that's used in horticulture, because I'm organic, I don't use anything. Mm. Um, it is, um, you know, they're becoming resistant to it. It's a uh -huh. huge problem for hookah growers and fern growers. They can no longer rely on the chemical. But um, I'm quite powerful um, in tubs. Always tug my plants and look at them very, very carefully. I was just wondering whether you as an organic gardener had a particular... Well, it's grit. They hate gritty grit. soil. They absolutely right. hate grit. They don't like getting through the grit. But if you add lots of grit to the actual mixture, they don't well, this, like that either. That's what you do with The best uh, thing uh, to, to combat them is having lots of beetles um, because beetle larvae and beetles will eat them. They'll eat the grubs. And the grubs are terrifically hardy. They can freeze down to really low temperatures and it won't kill them. But no. um, I don't have a lot of trou trouble in the garden with vine weevil, but I do have a lot of beetles because I have these areas of long grass and um, beetles love shade. And I have, I, I'm always trying to cast the shade and I'm always trying to get the garden completely covered with leaf in a normal way. I don't know, it'll probably be August this year, but, you know, <laughs> having that shade. Be, you don't see that many beetles uh, about because they're nocturnal, but they're definitely yeah. the best predators of slugs and the best predators of vine weevil. And then you just keep an eye on your plants. I mean, the, there are certain plants like hookahs, sedums that suffer from them. Sempervivum. You, you know, if you've got a, a good ecosystem of things eating them and birds coming in, um, they do. They do eat them. There are a problem in tubs. <laughs> Back to um, suggestions for Thunder Fairy. One of the there's um, a plant called Leptinella. Am I right, Leptinella? That little Leptinella creeping, sounds right. Yes. It, that little creeping fern-like leaf. And yes. The best way I've ever seen it used is is people run. Somebody ran it through the cracks in the paving at the Chelsea Flower Show. And I just yes. thought that was so spectacular because could it, be quite, it could be quite invasive, I think, but I'm not I think absolutely it could, sure. could be invasive. It's a bit like Pratia, isn't it, in the lawn? If you look yes. like Pratia to escape yes. into the lawn, I mean, we, we Thunder and I, we know a couple in, in North Norfolk who have the most wonderful lawn studded with these dark blue, tiny little star-shaped flowers, which they love. Yes. But a lot of yes. lawn enthusiasts, of course, wouldn't. But, you know, for people... Yes. With... I, I, I'm all for flowers in lawns. So um, am I. 
I have a lot of uh, mining bees and it's so cold, there's not many flowers in the garden, not as many as usual. And they're yeah. absolutely falling all over the daisies. Yes. So I'm just mowing the lawn until the, you know, the, the, there's more flower in the garden. Yeah. And a lot of people wouldn't put up with that, but I will. So will I. <laughs> and I mean, I suppose the, the and like I know you have that wonderful clematis pixie in your trough, Alan. Um, yeah. I suppose with a small trough, you just also got to be wary of those things that might be a bit too big and a bit out of proportion and a bit too rampant. Well, yes, you have. But if your if your trough is raised up and in full sun, I'll give you um, a couple of plants that you can have in a small trough. One of them is. Clematis pixie, which doesn't grow too big, plant it near the edge so it tumbles over and softens the edge yes. of your trough. The other end, I would plant um, a, the rosemary that I've got in my trough, which is called the foxtail rosemary, which kind of cascades down beautifully, gracefully. It could be outside. If you've got a sunny patch outside your kitchen, put it near the kitchen so you can rush in and pick little bits of rosemary off uh, to, to flavour your dishes with. Because the more you pick it, the, the, the more dense it becomes. But at my rosemary started flowering this year in January, of one or two specks of little flowers in January. And I mean, now it's in full flow and perfection. It's absolutely lovely. Everybody wants it when they see it. They know, not knowing what they're going to do with it, because you really do need to raise it up to get yeah. the beauty of it. I remember going to a manor house in um, Devon, I think Devon and Cornwall, when Graham and I went there for one of our first holidays together. And it was a garden visiting holiday. And they front of the manor house was kind of sunk down and there were two retaining walls on either side. And the one retaining wall that faced the sun was completely cascaded by trailing rosemary. And we went, I suppose, well, it was probably April or something like that when we were there, very early spring, because, you know, Cornish and, and Devon Gardens are very early. Um, and we wanted to see all that was to be seen. But this curtain of rosemary looks spectacular. It's another yes. idea. You know, if you've got a, a, a bank or something and a wall with soil at the top, just let it do it. It's beautiful. They're, ve they're very, very good container plants, particularly planted with Crocus chrysantha, because the, if you've got them in a sunny, warm place, even here, they will flower in February and the bees yeah. love it. Because yeah. Mediterranean plants have very concentrated nectar. It's very rich in sugar. Um, and there's also a theory that because herbs are good for us and we use them medicinally, they actually have some beneficial effects on bees as well. Yes. Uh, and there needs to be more research on that. Yes, and we, all need, we all need as much help as we can get. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Before we leave the idea of, of, of alpine troughs and gritty soil, I'm not sure which video, but someone in America had been watching our, our YouTube channel and they had been looking up horticultural grit in America and it doesn't seem to be called that in the USA. I don't know if either of you know what it is called, um, but if we have got viewers uh, or listeners in America, I don't know um, what, they, what they should go and get. Well, it, well, it has to be quite coarse grit and quite big grit. And, and I don't know what it's called, but the best grit I find um, you know, in the garden is, um, I used to buy it as Cornish grit because it had a lot of granite in it, but I don't know whether what it's sold as now. Um, I, I'm not really a products person. I don't, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I buy plants, but I buy very little in the way of other stuff. I think that we generally grow, uh, generally buy a coarse ground horticultural grit because yes, it all starts right. life as flint or gravel or something up here where we yes, are. Yes. Um, and it's that rolled to various, yeah, various yes. thicknesses. 
Yes. So we, we buy the coarse one. Yes. And of course, if you top, and a little tip for anybody is that if you top a bed with horticultural grit, coarse grit, you're then creating the most wonderful, wonderful seed bed. Now, before yeah. anybody says, yes, it's a seed bed for weeds too, but I'll tell you one thing about it. It is the most wonderful seed bed because it's always moist because of condensation. Um, and the other thing about it is that weed seeds are easily extricated because shower of rain, if we ever get one in East Anglia, that is, we can... <laughs> We can just give a little wiggle to our weeds and pull them out without disturbing everything else. Yes. Yeah. I used to have a gravel garden and I started off with about three dioramas. And after about 18 years, I had a complete forest of them. Because <laughs> it's actually pea gravel, which is also very, very good. Yeah. Uh, and, and I put grit uh, all around my sort of things like my scabiosa graminifolia. Anything I want to see down, like... Um, that wonderful um, Himalayan Miscanthus nepalensis, which has a yeah. wonderful fluffy seed heads in the winter. And it's looking really sad because we haven't had enough rain for it, really. Um, I put grit round that. I put grit round things like peony, tenufolia, things I want to sort of, if a seedling drops, I want to give it the best chance. I use it round some oryngiums, although a lot of oryngiums are hybrids, so you can't be sure what you'll get. No. No. I do use quite a lot of plants. I want to sort of drop seedlings on the ground. It's very good. Yeah. I put, I just put gravel and grit and everywhere. Cause I just love when things sell seed. I always figure you can mostly get rid of them. I have got huge amounts of lamb's ear now though, <laughs> which I need to do something about. <laughs> I've created yeah. a massive seed bed for that, which obviously it just wants to take over. So, and the other half keeps saying, I wish we had a bit less of that one. <laughs> Beth Tato sells a non-flowering one, and I can't remember the name of it, but there is there is a, a stuckus. Yeah, there is a non-flowering one. There's also one with very attractive lemon yellow fluffy um, leaves as well, which yes. is a pretty thing. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah, they're pretty. But, I, lo I love it, you know, in the front of roses. I haven't got enough room Yeah. Uh, to have much of it actually i have to take I've made it a, i've made a sort of gravel area where which really was a path um and but we didn't walk on that area of path and i had to increase the drainage there by incorporating more gravel and it's wonderful when people a friend of mine called rosie comes to the garden and she said oh i brought i've been to iran and i brought some little poppy seeds back would you like a few and i get a pinch <laughs> of these little poppy seeds from iran which is um, like a diminutive version of our corn poppy, but it's a softer orange with a dark purple throat. Um, and when it's it blooms, <laughs> and, I mean, you know, it's plants like that, I just love it. And it's great for Granny Gray's purple stock because my grandmother, who was, who was um, gardened in South Norfolk on heavy clay, she used to grow this um, Matheola stock um, and yeah. she planted it hard up against the wall of the house to keep it dry throughout the winter. And it's, it, I mean, it, as you know, they're probably not really that perennial, although they're perennial on the seashore. Um, but in areas well, cold, they're not. But I've got self-sown seedlings this year, so I'm so pleased. Well, I'll, I'll give you a tip. I grow yeah. the white one, yeah. and it is perennial. And I grow it here very successfully in lots of places. I do allow one or two to sell seeds so I can get seedlings. But if you take the seed pods off, it's perennial. Wallflowers so are the same. It has monocarpic tendency. Yeah. Yeah. So if you don't let it set seed and you deny it, it has another go. And, I, and no. some of my plants here are 10 or 12 years old. 
Val, that sounds like a dreadful disease. You have monocarpic tendencies. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense, though. I'd never thought about it like that. Thank you, Val. That's, that's very clever. I like that. <laughs> they have just reminded me, I've, I've been trying to grow some Matthiola from seed, and it's one of the ones that has been a real victim of the blackbirds, because I keep running my seed trays in and out, and I just... It's I'm, I'm... easy from cuttings, easy from cuttings. Yeah. Um, Coarse horticultural sand, kept damp, put into small seed trays. I do all my cuttings like that. I don't use it, don't ever mix up any potting stuff. I have these half trays of the rigid plastic seed trays, I fill it with, it's got to be coarse horticultural sand. And I keep it damp and at the back of the greenhouse. And then when I'm weeding and you hear that sickening snap, you know, that one when you think, oh, I've just snapped off that so-and-so that I've been trying to nurture into life. And you put the cutting in there, nearly everything takes. Mm. And I picked that tip up from a nursery woman uh, at a nursery called... Um, Burnwood near between um, quite near Wadston in uh, Aylesbury because every time I wanted a tender plant she always had it and uh, that was her method great big benches of coarse horticultural sand everything plonked in plectranthus pelagoniums anything so that's how I take all my cuttings wow a lot of them quite accidentally <laughs> while weeding. Well, sage advice <laughs> sage advice indeed I think now, I suppose we should do some Flomo because we've been chatting for a while. And although I'd be very happy for this podcast to last forever, I know you have to go, Val. Uh, so my Flomo is actually one of the few things I didn't buy when I was at Allen's Plant Fair. So there were a small selection of specialist sellers and I got all kinds of lovely things. This wonderfully kind of pink variegated honesty that I'm excited about and forced Alan to have as well because I was so excited it's about it. Somerset. Somerset Marble, I think. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. That's it. I think it is might that be, the name of it? I think it might be quite new. Yeah. And um Is it Somerset? I haven't seen it. Somerset Marble. It's it come from Joe Sharman. And apparently the, it, it self-sows. It it, yes. it self-sows, but you have to rogue out the plain green seedlings, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it'd be a 50-50 job, I think. Yeah, and yeah, I, I mean, think some come out without the pink variegation. It's basically a cross between the variegated one and the, the sort of darker leaved yeah. one and uh, yeah. so I'm excited about that and I got a lovely little uh, celandine from him sort of peering out to my patio I haven't gone in yet because I've got to increase my shade bed and I'm still negotiating on what part of the lawn I'm going to get um, so they're, they're <laughs> waiting to be planted um, but one thing I didn't buy um, was a narcissus because I'm, I was trying to be good but I'm rather regretting it now this wonderful narcissus called blushing lady which was so pretty and I obviously am crazy about all kinds of oranges and apricots. And it just it was the whole flower was imbued with a, a lovely blush. So I think that might now I have to. I think I would call it a glow. And it's glow. a glow that you get on, on clotted cream, isn't it? That lovely yes. sort of warm, warmth of cream. It, it was a beautiful thing. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that one. That's two things I have to look up. <laughs> <laughs> well I yeah I, I sometimes it's good to stop yourself buying things and sometimes you just then live in regret so I'm currently regretting not buying blushing lady uh, where's your flomo at foul well my flomo is um a variegated plant and I can tell you I don't like very many variegated plants 
and it's a sanguisorba. And generally, I like tall sanguisorbas, which are very airy, uh, you know, and they flower in September or July or August, you know, when the miscanthus is getting taller, because sanguisorbas have got um, such a translucent quality. They go really well with grasses. And so many of them have got dark heads. And, you know, I, I really love them. Uh, I like the sombre ones, like Martin's Mulberry. I like Red Busby. I, like, I really like sanguisorbas. Uh, and I saw this plant last year, and like you, I hesitated. I thought, I, I, I better not buy it. And it was a variegated, short sanguisorba, and it was called Little Angel. And it's being micropropagated, and it was absolutely everywhere. Every garden centre you went, there was Little Angel. And I thought, do I want this plant? It is variegated and I'm not a variegated person, but I think it would be lovely in a container. Uh, and one thing about variegated plants is I found very interesting is that having done a lot of plant trialing, when you get a variegated version of something like the variegated flocks, um, which Alan Bloom discovered, and I can't remember the name of, and I'm struggling. Nora Lee, Nora Lee. Mm. Yes, I think that's right. Phlox Norley. She's pale pink Norley, and she's yeah. got variegated leaves and she's tastefully variegated. Um, Bob was on, Bob Brown was on our Phlox trial and he was always trying to tell us how good Becky Toe was. And it was, it was hideous. I'm sorry, Bob, but it was hideous. But Norley was lovely. And we had wet summers in that trial. We had dry summers. And the funny thing is the variegated plant did very well in the dry. It didn't have any ill effects and it did very well in the wet and I think variegated plants have quite a tough constitution because of course they can't make that much chlorophyll so I thought well I should have bought this lovely dwarf sanguisorba called little angel and now of course I can't find it anywhere apart from one nursery which is selling it for a tenner and the Yorkshire side of me just won't let me pay £10 for a plant I know I could get for £5 somewhere else so I'm waiting to get Sanguisorba, little angel, and I'm going to put it in a pot. The other, the other side, the other side to that Flomo Val is that if you can find a big enough plant of little angel for ten pounds, you could split it into three. And I doubt would... whether the nursery that I know <laughs> that I'm talking about will have a big, well-rooted plant, though. Oh right, okay. Well, I'm not saying anything else. No. <laughs> but I liked your thinking there, Alan. Now, I, I remember you having a Flomo flash of inspiration earlier in the podcast, Alan, but I can't for the life of me remember what it was. Well, I'm not surprised of all the things we've talked about, but I mean, it, it reminded me of our, our lovely visit to Richard Hobbsgarden last Friday when um, we saw this fabulous clump of trilliums. And I suddenly thought, well, I, there's me doing this lovely little winter area, uh, shaded woodland area. Um, and I hadn't thought of putting trilliums in there. Um, and probably one of the reasons I hadn't is because two things, I think, first of all, they are expensive. Um, and the reason they're expensive is because they're very, very slow. And I mean, a, a nurseryman like Potterton's Nursery, they sometimes sell trilliums and that, you know, they can be anything between 10 and 20 pounds each, depending on which variety you're buying. But you've got to realize that that nurseryman has probably been growing that plant for at least five years, possibly even 10 before you get it. So that has to be incorporated into the cost of, of, of the plant. I mean, it depends also on, on rarity and things like that. 
But I just sort of thought, you know, that, that I've got to get my head round. I've got to not think like Val. If I can no. If, if well, I... with trilliums, I will spend the money because I grew, I started off by growing my uh, trilliums from seed. Yeah. And you I, know. I think I got it from the plant heritage plant stall at Hampton Court by memory. And I started growing these trilliums from seed. Yeah. And it took me eight years to get a plant about that high yeah. with a flower. And a I thought, I could, I could have had seven children in this time. <laughs> so I, I then learned to spend money. But I, I learned very, very quickly not to buy the dry bulbs because they're still lifting them in America and they don't do well. So you have no. to start with the living plant. And the nursery I'd recommend to you is Hugh Nunn's daughter's yeah. nursery called 12 nuns yeah. and they send out they do send out um uh corms i believe and they send out plants but the difference is that those plant those corms have been properly dried and they go straight out at the right time they haven't been lifted in spring uh when they're in leaf and then allowed to sort of dry up over yes, the summer is a great killer yes trilliums yeah. will not go um from um corms uh, or bulbs or whatever they are. I'm not quite sure what they are because um, when I was a child, uh, Woolworths was the great uh, plant provider in those days. Mm. And I would go down and they would have trilliums in there. And I would go through the trillium bulbs and try and find the one trillium bulb that looked different from all the others and buy it. <laughs> I never got anything to grow in the trillium line. It's quite no. successful with cyclamen. <laughs> <laughs> And on the plant heritage front, I was on the plant heritage website earlier and uh, I hadn't realised they have a whole online seed section. And I don't know if this was um, in existence yeah. pre-pandemic, but they certainly yeah. have it now. So well worth going, having a, a little look to see if you can get hold of something interesting there. If, if, you know, if that takes your fancy. Yes, definitely. I mean, I grew a lot of peonies from seed from, from there as well. And they're slow, but nothing like as slow as trilliums. <laughs> and a lot of nurserymen don't grow them because there's just not enough profit in them. They have to look after them for 10 years. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Sadly, they're, they're always in short supply. But they do sell seed, Alan. If you're putting um, leaf litter on yeah. and you're leaving the seed pods, um, they sell seed. And they come up on a, like a little bit of grass, as you said, then a, then a sort of lily-shaped oval thing. And they're hypergeal for the first year. It all happens underground, so nothing. So never disturb the area around your trilliums because you'll probably got seeds. Mm. And it's a similar valve. They have a, I mean, it's a first year rooting, second year shooting. Yes, yes. I mean, peonies uh, are slow. Yeah. What was the word yeah. you used? Hyper what? Hypergeal. Hypergeal. H-Y-P-O-G-E-A-L. Hypergeal. It's a hypergeal state. I work today. <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, Val, it's because you're a teacher. We always learn loads when you come on the podcast. Oh, it's because I'm a bore. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, Val, it's been an absolute treat. Please do come back again. Um, you know, yes, one well, thing... but I'm sure Alan's getting bored with me. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Because <laughs> I was just going to say, and then and in no way am I being um, flattering to you, other than to just say, when I when you come on and we talk, I just, I mean, I'm, I, I don't say that much because I'm listening and I'm learning and I do learn so much. And I actually have to say too, always from your articles that you write, there was a recent article I read in Country Life written by you. And it's it's there's always little gems of information that you know, I'm able to glean that I don't get from everywhere, Val. So thank you. 
Oh, thank you very much for those kind words. No, not at all. It's the truth. If you're, if you're studying writing and you wonder whether anybody ever reads it. <laughs> it's a lonely life being a writer. Honey, there's one out there. <laughs> but, at least, but at least you could go out and do a bit of weeding in between or something. <laughs> it's funny, when you're making radio, they always say, you know, imagine you're listening, you're talking to that one person. When you write your articles, you can imagine your reader, Alan Gray. Uh, yes. Well, I was an infant teacher, you see. That makes a huge difference. Well, there's an infant in me still. Well, the thing is that you have to, with young children, they're not going to listen unless you make it interesting. True. No. So you have to make you have to make everything just a bit magical. Yeah. And um, I, I thank my infants, 20 years of infant teaching for that. <laughs> I think that should be your tagline, Val Bourne, making things interesting, making them magical. <laughs> you brought the magic to the podcast today as ever so thank you i have got so many things now that i want to go and grow and um <laughs> as inspired as ever happy gardening everybody happy gardening, yeah, happy gardening. bye bye <laughs> bye hey Fordis here just to say thank you so much for listening to talking dirty you are now officially our favorite person if you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening and we'll see you, oh favourite person, next time.